Welcome to your home inspector training. I am Garth Haslam, the home medic. Subject today, tubs and showers. As you're doing your inspections, of course, everybody's concerned about mold, and there's few better places, well, there's really no better place to potentially cause a mold and water problem than the tub and shower area. Obviously, if a home has been around for a while, and especially if there's been kids you can pretty much expect that there will be water issues, maybe some shower splash or maybe some kid splash around the outer edges of the tub. So that's, of course, one of the first areas you're going to want to look. Now, it's fairly common to have water issues there, of course, but with certain buyers, uh, if you don't point it out, then you become the dough head. So... That's one of the uh, primary areas you're going to want to look at and make sure that that sort of thing gets written up. Now, I'm going to begin this segment with a little story that I have. It happened to my best friend. Now, what happened is his wife was cleaning the baseboards one day, and as she was doing so, she actually ended up sticking her finger through the baseboard. It was paper thin, and the reason it was paper thin was because there was termites that had eaten that baseboard away. So this ended up being a bad day for her. Obviously, as she pushed her finger through that baseboard, she ended up face-to-face with a couple of termites. Now, in the area that I live, termites are very uncommon. They're only subterranean. You really only get them when you really roll out the welcome mat for them. In this case, my buddy had done exactly that. He had rolled out the welcome mat unknowingly. What had happened in his home is that behind the wall, the shower head connection was loose. And so every time anybody took a shower in that area, and that was routinely, they were adding a drip, drip, drip of water into the space inside that shower wall. So, as you can imagine, over years and hundreds of showers, there was a very healthy termite colony living in that space. Now, my buddy's wife, of course, she decided that all of this was happening because my buddy worked too much, and so she called the most expensive termite remediator in town and had them do the remediation. From my point of view, the remediation on something like this isn't necessarily poison. It is making sure that the leak, in this case the shower wall, is taken care of. Any amount of poison will kill any amount of termites, but the next day, there's still going to be a drip, and so you can be guaranteed that there will continue to be water issues and rot mold termites, etc., behind that space until it gets fixed. So one of your inspection points, then, would be just to take a look around and see what potential water sources there may be. Of course, in this particular case, you can't and are not expected to see behind walls But you might want to just grab that shower head and gently, you know, with one or two pounds of force, see if it will twist. If so, then you know there's a loose connection. Pressure and flow is another inspection point inside a shower. Quite often I will see where, for example, if there's a ton of pressure and it's not been turned down at the pressure-reducing valve there by the main of the house, I tell people it's going to blow a hole in your chest. And uh, that always makes people giggle a little, but it's an important point to point out there because the home buyer, of course, unless they want to have this 100 mile an hour stream of water hit their chest, 
you're there to tell them how they can turn that down. You know, they can uh, either turn it down with a pressure-reducing valve, maybe put a different head on, that sort of thing. But you're there to provide that sort of value. Much more of a problem is when there is not enough flow or enough pressure. And I see that fairly commonly. Maybe there's a kink in the line going to the shower. Maybe there's a rock in the valve that needs to be cleaned out. Or you got, who knows, uh, maybe you just don't have enough pressure. There are a lot more of my clients that are, of course, concerned about not having enough pressure and enough flow. And, of course, you will get that 3 a.m. phone call, or maybe in this case the 8.30 a.m. phone call when somebody tries to take their first shower and there's barely enough water to get them wet. That is, of course, one of your inspection points. Calcium is another one of those things that can happen in showers, and I actually deal with that in mine. There's an overhead shower that I have in in my shower, and, and that one very routinely gets plugged up and it's not with sand and grit it's actually with calcium in the water that plugs up the tiny holes and causes them to start shooting everywhere and some of the homes that you might inspect where they're not able to clean it as routinely as I can and do you may only get a couple of those openings to actually produce water in that case it is not actually a pressure problem it's a restriction problem where the hole is actually just plugged So then you tell them that you can either replace the shower head or you can clean it. Cleaning can mean a product like CLR or Rust-Away, or they can put it in something like vinegar and try to clean it away more gently. But the calcium can be a problem in shower heads. Of course, you know, if you've got this shower head with, I don't know, 80 openings and only two or three of them are working, That's certainly something that you're going to want to make your client aware of. You do become the bonehead if that sort of stuff doesn't get noticed and written up. Also in showers, we're going to move from the shower head itself to uh, the ceiling. Now quite often as I inspect shower areas, you're going to have... Of course, various configurations. Sometimes you're going to have a glass cover. Sometimes you're going to have just a shower curtain. Whatever it is, if the curtain or the glass goes too high, or if you've got too much of a cave type of an environment where there is poor ventilation, caves obviously are likely to have mold, especially when a part of that cave is going to be a sheetrock ceiling. Now, showers come in all shapes and sizes, and sometimes they will actually tile all the way up to the ceiling and across the ceiling. And if you've got this cave that's basically tile all the way across and around, you have much less to worry about as far as reporting a mold issue or a potential mold issue. But as you get into there, and if it looks like it's poorly vented, and it is a bit of a cave, you're going to want to look for signs of mold on the ceiling, especially in the outer corners where the ventilation is the least. Obviously, if there is even a dime size worth of mold and you miss it, you become, again, the villain and life starts to suck for you. That's something you're definitely going to want to be paying attention to. Now, as relates to the discussion with the buyer, about how to fix that it's all about ventilation so they have a number of choices they could leave the shower curtain open 
I've seen a number of homes where that is the very simple fix. You know, homeowners with their OCD lifestyle want to have that shower curtain closed, and that's great. It makes them feel better, but it results in that humidity not being able to escape, and then you got a mold problem. So sometimes it's as simple as just leaving the shower curtain open at the end of the shower. Sometimes it is a little bit more complicated and might require that perhaps they install a vent or a fan in or near that space. The bottom line is all of that humidity from the shower needs to be vented. Now I have seen where they actually run a vent from the shower directly into the attic space above. And again, I'm not going to go quoting code because A, I'm not a code inspector and B, code could change from year to year or from state to state. So I'm, I'm going to stay away from that. But the bottom line is I did see one home, only one, where they were venting somebody's long, hot daily shower into the attic and it caused a little bit of a mold problem there. I don't have much of an issue with that because there, if it is mold, it's in the attic and it's in a uh, couple of square feet. So certainly something to write up, but not something to kill the deal over. So those are the sorts of things you can always be paying attention to on the ceiling. Now, let's go to windows. Windows in shower environments can be awesome. Awesome as in lots of things for you to write up and make a hero of yourself of. If you're looking for issues in a shower look no further than the window because it's quite often almost guaranteed to give you something. Now, obviously, when somebody has a window in the shower environment, they want more light. They want it to not feel so much like a cave, and that's all understandable. Be aware that the window is rarely well-suited for that very wet and splashy shower environment. So in order for things to be okay, there's a couple things that have to be right. One of those would be a caulk seal between the window and the shower surround. And that caulk seal needs to be in good shape 100% of the area. So if somebody's splashing water into there and you've got a maybe a two-foot window and 23 inches of it is okay, but one inch is not, you could easily have water get into that space. In addition, the slope there at the windowsill between the window and, and the rest of the vertical shower surround, that slope needs to be positive. Positive in the same way as a positive drainage slope on the exterior of the home, meaning that it needs to force water back into the shower surround. Quite often I will see those dead flat or even sometimes negative where they force water towards the window. Again, the seal can never be completely relied on to do what it needs to do. Caulk ages, and there's always Murphy's Law. So if you've got a negative slope towards the window, you can pretty much guarantee that there has been or will be or is a water problem inside that wall. Similarly, quite often when you've got the shower splash going on, it's going to hit the glass, it's going to run straight down into the window, and it's going to fill up that area that is the bottom of the window frame. So when that's going on, usually that's not a problem because you'll have some weep holes on the exterior that allow that water to weep out, and then we don't have a problem. Quite often, though, what happens is those weep holes fill up with dirt from wind-blown soil or whatever, 
and then the weep holes don't work, and then we start overflowing, and then we're back into the wall again where we uh, go back to rot mold termites. So you're going to want to make sure that the weep hole is there, that the window frame was installed properly with the weep hole actually on the outside of the house as opposed to draining water into the wall. And again, that's why we're home inspectors. That's why we have a job is because people do stuff that is that stupid regularly. So uh, take a look at the weep hole. Make sure that it's there. Take a look at the slope and the caulk seal. And, of course, the window itself, you're going to want to make sure that it does all the things that you expect a window to do. Uh, you're going to want to have the double pane. You'll want to make sure that you know we don't have any cracks or anything akin to that and, and, and that we don't have somebody who's showering going to get cut somehow on that window. It needs to lock. It needs to do all those sorts of things. Now, another item you can do just as a 10-cent upgrade, uh, you know, a factoid, as you're doing your inspections is you'll want to notice whether that window is clear or not. And you just want to mention that these guys, if the, if the window is clear, they might be entertaining the neighbors. Some of them, depending on how things go, they might be okay with that. Maybe the neighbors happen to be a herd of cattle, but it's something that you want to put on the buyer's radar. Okay, another one of the inspection points, as you're looking in the shower environment, you want to take a look, of course, at the hot and cold water valves. Do they both deliver hot and cold appropriately? Depending on what the valve is, the hot should be to the left, cold to the right, or if you've got a more upgraded valve, usually you're going to have your hot be counterclockwise. In any case, you're going to want to look at the valve and just see what it does and see if it actually delivers what it says it's going to do. Not uncommon for a hot water valve to be hot and cold plumbed backwards. It's not a huge deal. It's a fairly easy fix, but it's one of those things where if it's not right, then you need to write it up. I actually have a macro in my report where rather than type in hot and cold plumb backwards, I just have HCB which is short for, of course, hot, cold, backwards. And then my software turns that into the sentence, hot and cold, plumb, backwards. It's common enough that I have that macro already designed for that. You want to take a look at those valves themselves. Do they spin? There was one bathroom that I did. Actually, this was the sink. It wasn't the tub and shower, but the same kind of thing can happen at the tub and shower. And I actually had the home buyers, and I actually, on this one, was a lot of years ago, so I actually allowed the seller to hang with me. But the valves, I turned them and got them going, and then I tried to turn them off. And they spun and spun and spun, and I couldn't get it off, and so I kept turning. And I actually had the handle come off in my hand, and now we've got this big spurt of water that's trying to hit the ceiling, so that, of course, was a ton of drama. I believe on that one we ended up being successful at turning the water off at the manual shutoff valve located beneath the sink. And if you've been around the block enough to know, those aren't very reliable because they never get exercised. But you got the same sort of thing that goes on at the tub. So if you have to play guessing games to try and figure out where the on and off position is at the tub and shower, that's something that needs to be written up. It's also fairly common at the valves, and this also happens at the faucet itself, 
that you will have a gap, and maybe it's only a sixteenth of an inch, but it will be a gap between the tub surround and the shower surround and the backside of the valve plate. So let me paint a better picture for you. You have the surround itself. You have the hot and cold valves. The back of the hot valve is going to have a little plate that should sit firmly up against the surround. Quite often it does not. And a lot of people don't pay attention to that 16th of an inch gap or 8th inch gap or whatever it is. Uh, They think that it's okay. But very commonly what happens is, again, in that highly splash-type environment, you're going to get water run down that shower surround. It's going to get in behind that plate, and then you're back to rot mold termites. So if you've got a gap there, that's something you need to notice. And again, this gap can be either behind the hot or behind the cold or behind the tub faucet. And it can actually be behind the plate going to the shower head itself. It can be around any of those or any other interface that's going on in there. And if it's not right, you could very easily be getting water into there. So this is something that you need to point out to the client, then write up that it just needs 10 cents worth of caulk so that you have a good seal. Either that or it be installed better, but the caulk is usually the less expensive option. You are also going to want to take a look at the surround itself. Now, I mentioned the gap between the faucet and the surround. There's also the tub and the surround. Now, quite often, the tub will have a lip behind it that the surround goes over, and this basically completely prevents water from going in places where it shouldn't. Often, however, it doesn't have that. So you're going to want to just take a look and see if uh, you can see any sign of issues. Now, a lot of that's going to be behind the wall, and you can't see that, but you want to gather any information you can about the surround. You know, especially if the homes are older and you you believe that there may not be that uh, little bit of flashing there, this is something that you're going to want to be paying attention to. Also, and this is something that I see regularly, is the surround height. Now, I'm six feet tall, and in just standard running shoes, I'm about six foot one. And as I get into a lot of the surrounds that I inspect, I'm too tall for those. And with the bald head that I have, if I were to be showering in a lot of those showers that I stand in while doing my inspections... I would be splashing water all over the place, including and especially the sheetrock. Quite often, you'll have the former owners that were maybe four foot nothing because it's grandma, and your clients will be closer to my height or taller, and as they're getting in there showering, they're just going to be soaking that sheetrock, and you're guaranteed to have mold issues again. So you'll want to pay attention to that surround height, Make sure it is adequate for whoever is going to be showering in there. Even if your client's family, maybe you've got mom and dad and three two-foot children, and only the two-foot children are going to be showering in this space, you still want to bring this up to them because at some point they are liable to be selling that house and then be surprised with the request for raising the shower surround height. So, again, just uh, as a service to your client, you want to bring that up, put it on the radar. 
Venting. Now, we talked about that earlier. If the shower or tub surround is a cave, you got to have some venting or you're going to have the mold. And if you got a window there that does meet, let's just say, not code, but building standard requirements, you want to just make sure that, again, that that window is there, that they know that they should use it so that they're not getting mold issues. Let's do tubs. Obviously, and we've all grown up, we were all children once. Tubs are fun if you're five years old to splash around in and throw balls in and have toys. And it's an entertainment center. As you're doing so as a five-year-old, the last thing you're concerned about is splashing water over the edge of the tub. As a matter of fact, when I was five, that was one of the things I did is I tried to see how much I could slosh the water and actually wash water over the edge of the tub. It was part of the game. So, if the home has been around for any amount of time, it's fairly routine for there to be water at the corners of the tub, actually out in the rest of the bathroom. Now, obviously the subfloor wasn't meant for that. I did get one of those angry phone calls once a number of years ago from a realtor who had peeled up the linoleum on the outer edges of the tub, and she saw all this black mold history. And she was unhappy anymore. Thank goodness linoleum is gone, and and that sort of inspectability is no longer available. Quite often now it's tile, but that is an area that you're going to want to be paying attention to. If you've got linoleum and whether or not it can be peeled up, of course, you don't want to be changing the house in any way. That's one of the primary rules associated with the home and being a home inspector is you can't change the house. If you can do so, you want to take a look at that. Again, routinely, most of the time, there will be some water history on both outer edges of the tub. What you can do is you can actually grab your screwdriver, the back of it, and not the screwdriver end, but the handle end, and hit that area. Just knock that around the area, and you can tell where the subfloor is solid, and then you can hear that sound, and then make the same motion, just kind of using the back end of a screwdriver as a hammer, and do that same sort of thing at the outer corners of the tub. If you hear a marked difference, then there's been enough water history there to change the condition of the subfloor, and then you got to make a decision as to whether you're going to recommend to the home buyers that they perhaps replace the subfloor in that space. Now, from my point of view, black mold history if you've still got a solid subfloor, is really not much of an issue. If the water splashing is done, then that mold will be dead. And if the subfloor remains solid, then you just have a history. And that's the way I write my reports. Now, I don't just completely ignore it on the reports. I'll write it up as a mold history and make sure that you understand that there is a difference between mold and a mold history. Obviously, mold histories are where there was once water, where there was once mold, and then things dried up and now it died. I can say this because I am in a very dry environment and mold doesn't live here by itself unless you have water added to the environment for it. Now, if you happen to live in Florida or Houston, that may be a different case for you. Maybe in some of those homes, the mold might keep itself alive depending on what's going on there. That's for you to gather more information on your own. 
Okay, so you got the floor outside the tub. You want to take a look at the molding all around. Sometimes you got the floor molding, and sometimes it's been wet, and you can see that there's been mold or a mold history there. Another one of my favorite stories, a lot of the tubs that are installed, many of them should have a foam support that gets installed beneath them. Many of them don't need it, but the ones that do and where you don't get that foam installed beneath them, they can crack. So what had happened in this particular case is I'd done an inspection, and as I'd mentioned in other podcasts, I love to have my client there so they can see what I look at, what I stop at, what I think is a big deal, what I think is a little deal, what's not worth writing up, what is, and I can just put stuff on those guys' radar. It's so much more difficult to do that if they're just relying on a report or a summary at the end. In this case, the client was way too busy to talk to me during the inspection, so she asked me to send her a report, did that. Then I got that 3 a.m. phone call a couple of weeks later, and she says, my tub is cracked. And the issue was that she had some hairline cracks in, in the tub near the drain. It actually wasn't leaking, and that's what I had determined while I was there at the property. And by the way, one of the ways you can verify that it's not leaking is you fill the tub up with an inch of water. and You look around in that bathroom and beneath that space and make sure there's no leaks. I have another story about that. I'll tell you that one in a minute. So she'd called me up, and she was more than a little upset. And she basically said, we have cracks, and it's not leaking, but it could, and I want you to pay. So I'd mentioned that, you know, that I'm looking for functionality, et cetera, and sometimes cracks are just that. They can happen. Then I'd mentioned, you know, depending on the weight of the person using the tub, it could make a difference. And then she was even more mad because then she thought I was insulting her for her weight. And I, of course, had no idea who she was, how much she weighed, what she looked like. But, you know, I stepped in that trap. I'd mentioned the word weight while talking to a woman. So, yeah, that's just one of those war stories that maybe you can gain something from and maybe not. way it ended up is I referred her to a tub technician who I think probably soothed her anger. But if you do see those sorts of cracks going on, you know, even if they are hairline cracks, even if they don't leak, you're going to want to make sure, especially if your client is not there, that you proved that you saw them and you don't think they're interesting. Now, something that I do find more interesting is actually ponding in a tub. Quite often, and this will happen near a drain is where the tub as it drains it almost drains completely but not quite and you'll end up with a few tablespoons of water located near the drain that didn't quite make it and so this little bit of water again maybe enough to cover the bottom of a cup is going to just sit there in the tub and it's going to stagnate and that water is, of course, going to fester. That's a good way to transfer, you know, funguses and athlete's foot and those sorts of things. And it's going to have a ring around the exterior, and it's just going to be nasty. 
So I'll, I'll point that sort of thing out to the buyer as well. Make sure they're clear that uh, that's not okay. Now, the fix on that, you can get a tub liner that will often fix the problem. You can try to just fill in the hole with certain materials, and those may or may not work. You probably want to go to the forum that I'll have on my website and just see how people respond to that question about what fillers or methods may be available for filling that little pond in the bottom of the tub that doesn't drain. Again, the buyers don't want to deal with having somebody else's athlete's foot fungus grow so that they can pick it up when they shower or have a bath in that space. Ponding or incomplete drainage is certainly one of the inspection points you're going to be wanting to pay attention to. Of course, you got to look for that before you turn on the water because it's going to take forever for that tub to drain out. And you're not going to be wanting to stand there and wait for that to happen and then make a judgment call as to whether ponding remains. Now, let me tell you one more story that I have. This was a brand new home. You know, there is sometimes the mistaken assumption that a lot of home buyers have, and perhaps even home inspectors, that only old homes have problems. In this case, this was a brand new home. It was, I imagine it sold for around $800,000. Fairly nice home. Had an insane view of the entire valley. It was gorgeous. Main floor was done. And then, then what was unique about this property, because it was built on a very steep hillside, is it actually had two basements. You walk into this property on the main floor, and you've got this crazy view. You go down the stairs, it's got another crazy view, and then you can actually go down the stairs again, and it still has a view because by the time you get that far down, the hillside has dropped so much that all three levels have a view. Now, in this inspection, the two bottom levels were completely unfinished. So what I had done is I went into the uh, master bathroom and... I had actually filled up the tub with about an inch of water, and then I'd walked away. And then I finished up the main floor, and I went down to the basement, and I heard this drip, drip. And in a new home, that's never a good thing. You know, it means either the water heater is toast or something bad is happening that we need to address. Kind of filled me with terror. I wondered if I'd left the tub on. I wondered... You know, if there was some sort of a flood that I was causing and if I was going to get sued for all of this. It turned out that the tub, the connection, was not well done by the plumber. And so this one inch of water was dripping down into the space beneath. And I certainly made myself a hero because I was able to identify that this connection was not done properly. You can only imagine how bad this would have been if the top of the basement levels was finished. And then the buyer figures that out later on after everything is finished up. Now instead of, you know, a simple call the plumber back, it becomes a many thousands of dollars sort of a repair. So, you know, again, there's things to learn from that that I would encourage you to gather for your own use. It can be a very good idea to fill tubs with an inch of water and, uh, and then just look around. Okay, let's do jetted tubs. I'm going to start with a story of my own where things got a little bit more dramatic. Now, as you can guess, a part of the inspection for jetted tubs is going to be that you're going to push the on button and see if things actually turn on. 
And uh, there was an inspection where I did that. And apparently the lady, the seller, actually had some magical method where you were supposed to push it in part way and then let it go and then push it in some more. And, of course, I didn't know that because I was the inspector. I just pushed it in and apparently doing so broke it. So the owner calls me up all enraged. And after I had written up that the tub didn't work, and she says, well, it works for me when I do blah, blah, blah. And so you broke it, and I expect you to fix it. And, of course, then the fix, after I made a couple phone calls, was going to be a few hundred dollars, and I wasn't going to do that. Now, it is a part of your job, you know, to hit the on button, to flip switches, et cetera, and make sure things work. We can't not do those sorts of things. So the philosophy I've taken after thinking about that is that if you've got to do some special sequence, then the switch or the valve or whatever it is, is not functional as it was designed to be. Therefore, it is broken. And it becomes the responsibility of the seller to take care of things. You've got to be able to do things, and there shouldn't be a certain instruction manual for buttons and switches. The same sort of thing applies to doors. Quite often, if a door has to have a sequence of things done to it so that you can get it to close and lock, that is not a functional door. So next time I get that sort of a phone call, I will deal with that in that particular way. I had more trouble with her because that was the first time I had dealt with something like that. You will want to have your own response prepared when people start blaming you for breaking things when you've only been doing your job. Let's talk about biofilm in jetted tubs because this is a biggie for a lot of people. I wrote an article about biofilm, and if you do a search for my name, Garth Haslam, and the word jetted tub or biofilm, uh, Google should pull it right up. And that was a very well-read article. It made a rock star out of me with KSL.com and got a lot of hits and reassured me that there was a market for the information that I could provide. I guess you could say that it's true that that particular article is one of the reasons why you are listening to me now. So biofilm is basically the same stuff that you see on rocks in a stream. It is the same kind of thing that you brush off of your teeth. It's just a filmy material full of all kinds of slimes and bugs and what have yous. And nobody wants it on or in or around them. Now, what happens with biofilm in a tub, it kind of looks like, and it, the color can change, but usually it's a gray to a light black cornflake. If you imagine cornflakes being swirled around in a tub, that's kind of what this biofilm looks like. And what's going on is that you've got skin and soap that gets trapped behind the jets of a jetted tub. Now, the older versions of tubs will have trapped water areas where it doesn't completely drain out. When that happens, this is where the biofilm builds, and then uh, somebody fills up the tub, turns on the water, and all this biofilm goes blowing out through those jets into the water. And now, instead of bathing in clean water, your naked bather is now bathing in a swamp, and it's uh, they're going to get out of there and, and need to take a shower because it's all kinds of nasty. The other thing that you might want to gently mention is that this is harder on women because they're more prone to infections from nasty water. So the biofilm is certainly something that needs to be inspected for, 
And if you've got the buyer there, just seeing that those nasty cornflakes, sometimes it looks more like pepper. Sometimes you have the bigger flakes. But in any case, uh, once you've seen that once, nobody wants to get into that water. So sometimes you can have the show and tell do the job for you, and you can explain that that's just not healthy stuff. The next question that you are always going to get from the buyer is, what do I do about this? And there are a number of options. Of course, the most expensive one is to replace the tub or do repairs so that the jets don't allow water to drain. Now, if the water does drain completely every time, if you've got those jets designed that way and the plumbing behind them, then you will not have the biofilm and you don't have a problem. So it's not every jetted tub. It's usually the older ones that are less well-designed. So... That's the most expensive option. The least expensive option, but the most annoying, is to fill and drain the tub either before or after each use. Let's say that you get out of the tub, you drain it, then you refill it, and you run the jets, and now you don't have the skin and soap in the tub that were there, so you're going to have much less of an issue. Of course, to refill and drain before or after each use takes a lot of time, and it's annoying, and nobody really wants to do that. So then you get into some options that cost a little bit of money and usually are mostly effective. The least chemical-based of these would be something like baking soda or vinegar. You can put some in there, and again, I can't tell you how much because the skin and the soap load and the size of the tub and the design... These are things that can't be predicted by either me or you until we're actually looking at the tub. But if it's baking soda, for example, they might want to drop at least half of the box in there. You know, a couple of teaspoons just isn't going to do anything. Same thing with vinegar. Maybe a half a bottle of vinegar for most tubs might be enough, but they're going to have to do some experimenting and find out themselves. So that's some homegrown solutions. They can also go with pool and spa chemicals. You can get those at pool and spa stores, or you can get them at places like Walmart, where you drop that water in. After you get out of the tub, you cycle the tub, and then you got these chemicals that at least they may not prevent, but they substantially reduce the amount of biofilm that builds up in those spaces. In addition, you could go with a product like hydrogen peroxide. It's a fairly gentle material. I would probably dump an entire pint in there because, again, it's going to be substantially diluted. I like peroxide, though, because it's, it doesn't off-gas and cause other problems, and it's not such a nasty chemical that it's going to damage anything in the tub, usually. Another one of your options would be chlorine. You know, to drop maybe a cup or a half cup of chlorine will kill things. It's going to kill all the bacteria and substantially reduce the biofilm. I've talked to some pool and spa store owners, and they tell me that it does just fine. But I know that at least one tub that I built myself, the instructions were to never put anything, you know, never clean the tub with anything more harsh than water, and definitely not with chlorine. I know that from my way remediation operations where I used chlorine, that chlorine in the indoor environment can be a very nasty chemical. It can be hard on the person who's breathing it. It can be hard on the plumbing. And I've been told that it's okay, but you know, I have some reservations. 
All right, we have talked about tubs and shower issues, about the shower head itself, making sure that the tightness is okay so that you're not getting that termite colony behind the wall. We talked about the ceilings in the shower environment to make sure you're not getting a cave and mold and, and talked about the ventilation around that. If you're inspecting a home that has a window in the shower environment, first thing you're going to want to do is groan and then check that carefully to make sure that that's not causing problems. Talked about the hot and cold. Make sure that we have the delivery properly in the valves and make sure that they behave in a way that they're supposed to do. We've talked about the shower surround itself and gaps and making sure that that's a well-sealed surround so that, again, you're not getting the rot mold termite issues. We talked about venting and about tubs and the issues associated with tubs, whether they be jetted or not. We spent some time telling stories about biofilm, especially in jetted tubs, why that's a problem, the health effects that it can cause, and what you can do about resolving a, a biofilm problem in a home. There are a lot of home buyers that have learned by now, and they would just rather not have a jetted tub at all. And that's because nobody really wants to deal with even the thought of potentially having biofilm in the tub that they're using. That is your kindergarten-level training on uh, tubs and showers and shower environments as a home inspector. And as I always like to finish, the most important thing you do when you're inspecting is respecting your clients. Make sure that they feel like you're there for them and not just to show them how cool and awesome and knowledgeable and thorough you are. It's about them. It is not about you. Go out there. Make me proud. <laughs>